0: You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported.
1: Community Radio for South Central Indiana.
2: Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones.
1: And I'm Abe Shapiro. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, October 12th, 2022.
2: Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro continues his conversation with attorney Jeremiah Fry Pearson about a lawsuit against the rideshare company Lyft over its alleged lack of wheelchair accessible vehicles, or WAVs. This is the latest edition of an ongoing series on the WFHB local news. More in today's feature report. Also
1: coming up in the next half hour, we have Better Beware your weekly consumer watchdog segment here on WFHB. we're following today's feature, but first, your local headlines.
2: The Bloomington City Council discussed the redistricting maps at their meeting held on October 6th. Council member Steve Volan Ask the council to ask the redistricting advisory committee to continue to work on the district maps.
3: After weeks of research and contemplation, I'll be asking you to join me in voting to send the, the map back to the commission for reconsideration. There's an awful lot to say about this that there's no time for, which I'm going to send along as written material to the Commission. While I encourage you to write your own recommendations, I'll be submitting the following three basic principles. Number one, Third Street is not that important as a border for council districts. Number two, compactness should be de-emphasized in favor of emphasizing communities of interest. And three, the ultimate community of interest in this town, a college town, is the specific area where constituents live in university-owned apartment buildings. But first, let's take Third Street. Um, People don't decide where to live in Bloomington based on what township the home is in. They're concerned about neighborhoods and community finding a good, affordable home. So, for example, 3rd Street is no longer the southern border of campus. It goes through it. There are buildings IU owns south of 3rd and Perry 7, which is pictured, as well as several fraternities and sororities, which are all contiguous with or part of the campus already. People who live in Perry 7 think of their neighborhood as the campus, not as Elm Heights. But Park Regis and Gentry Estates have a lot in common as well, being on the east edge of the city. I think they'd be happier being together in the same district than they care about Third Street as a dividing line.
2: Volan also said that the commission's focus on compactness score was at the expense of keeping neighborhoods with common interests together.
3: But let's ask ourselves, what's the point in compactness anyway? It's not to draw maps with satisfying lines. The commission, uh, it's, to, it's to unify communities of character. The commission focused on Third Street and compactness, I think, at the expense of character. The bottom line is it's just not that important to have perfectly square districts if it means that neighborhoods with common interests get divided up.
2: Volan's third argument was that the maps did not focus on the Indiana University population when the city is, meanwhile, a college town. Voland shared that according to the census data over the years, the student population is large enough to be considered for its own district. He urged the other council members to ask the commission to take this into consideration.
3: And yet there are students here, in this case from Bloomington 7, who've been working to get their neighbors registered to vote. We have to make an effort to engage constituencies, a constituency that is half the city. This is the most obvious and expedient way. And now is the best opportunity we're going to have for a decade. The proposed map 11 doesn't go far enough to this end and is still mixing the more eclectic neighborhoods uh, to the southwest of this this image with the monolith of campus housing that the purple represents, whose constituents have unusual characteristics and unusual concerns. I'm agnostic about my map 18, but I'm not agnostic about serving, uh, you know, the student constituents. I wanna urge you to urge the commission to rework the map taking this into account.
2: Council member Sue Scambarelli said that while she believes students should have every right to participate in the civic process without any obstacles, she didn't understand why the redistricting maps should address the issue.
4: So continuing along that same train of thought, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Students are every much, every much of a resident as I am or anybody on this council. The notion um that students can't participate or or there are obstacles to participation, I'm wondering why those need to be solved by this map. And not. I I think, for example, one of the biggest impediments or or obstacles to a student being on council is the fact that we have four-year terms. And that doesn't fit well with the academic pattern that many students follow. So I'm curious as to why this map is necessary to solve
2: it. Volin responded.
3: Well, um, like I said, uh, if I could, I would draw a map that was exclusively university housing, but that's not the option that we have. The two precincts to the west of the district that I propose do have housing that is not directly, that there, there is private housing in um, those neighborhoods, and um, uh, someone who, uh, let's say a sophomore, was elected in, uh, while living in the dorm, uh, they could fill out their term by moving to um, one of those apartments. So it is possible to do it without having to be wholly dependent on the university, which does offer um, dorm students the chance to live uh, in, uh, on campus in the summer. But this goes to another point about students, which is that um, they move every year. They move intra-locally, but they're still local residents. Uh, and we don't have the authority, statutorily, to declare one at-large seat to be a student seat. The next best thing we can do is take the seat where this area, where no non-students can live, and uh, dedicate it to basically be the de facto student seat. That uh, regardless of where students live, they will treat that representative as an at-large representative. It's the best option that I could find. It's it's you know not ideal, uh, but uh, that's that's why.
2: The council voted to approve the new district maps with a close vote of 5 to 4, with council members Sandberg, Scambarelli, Sims, Smith, and Rollo voting in favor of the maps, and Flaherty, Piedmont-Smith, Rosenbarger, and Volan voting in opposition. The next Bloomington City Council meeting will be held on October 12th.
1: On October 6th. President of the Ellettsville Plan Commission, David Drake, started the meeting by holding a moment of silence for Terry Baker, who passed away on September 8th. Uh,
4: The first thing I would like for us to do is to take a moment of silence for Terry Baker, uh, who was a member of the Plan Commission for many years, uh, as well as I believe the Board of Zoning Appeals. He passed away on September 8th, and uh, we'll just take a moment of silence for him.
1: Commission member Dan Swafford asked how long Baker had been on the commission. Drake said he had been a part of it for about 20 years. Commission member Sandra Hash said he had been there as long as she has. Swafford said he will be missed. Next, the commission heard from Planning Director Denise Line about the voluntary annexation of Cook Incorporated property into the town of Ellettsville.
0: In Monroe County, it's currently all parcels are currently zoned. L1, which is third light um, residential, and ours is I1, which is light industrial um, because of the type of work that they do, and they have some warehouses. It's considered their West Eldsville facility. The properties are located in Council Ward 1. It will be serviced by water. It does not require any other capital projects to extend, extend services. And the cost for extension of utilities is borne by any developer that Cook may hire. Um, Town will provide police, fire, EMS, and other governmental services immediately upon annexation. All legal notices have been sent to adjacent property owners and was published in the Herald Times.
1: Line said that planning staff recommend the approval of the annexation to the town council. Vice President of Marketing Communications for Cook and Envision Ellettsville co-chair Krista Curtis spoke on behalf of the petition and her work to get Cook.
0: We're actually really happy to be doing this, to be honest with you. Um, Cook has a philosophy that we we need to be heavily engaged and involved in our communities. And what's funny is that everybody thinks we're already a part of Ellettsville. so it's, it, it's just very interesting when, when we started having the conversation to find out that we actually weren't in the city limits. So um, to sound cliche, it was a no-brainer um, to, to, to work with you all to, to bring our facility into the community. And um, I'm not going to lie, I had a hand in this because I do feel it's also important for Envision Ellisville that all the stakeholders are, are behind the town and what we're doing. So that's really all I have to say unless you all have questions for me.
1: Swafford commented that the annexation was a long time coming.
5: No questions, comment. This has been a long time coming. There's some interesting history about this property from years ago when the Cook tried to come into the town. And so I'm, I'm finally glad to see that they put to rest and they're coming back.
1: Drake said there is no downside of Cook being annexed into the town and explained that the town already has provided its services due to their close proximity.
4: Well, there's really no downside to the town that I see because the fire protection is already coming from the town of Right. A large portion of the police protection is already coming from the town of Ellipsville because our police department is so much closer, and a lot of times we'll take the call for the sheriff's department. There are very few calls there anyway. If there are, it's usually an alarm call or something like that. So I, I don't see any downside to the, to the town for this at all
1: the commission voted unanimously to send a positive recommendation to the Ellettsville town council to approve the voluntary annexation the next Ellettsville plan commission meeting has been scheduled for november 3rd
2: In today's dis bulletin WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro speaks with attorney Jeremiah Fry Pearson about a lawsuit against the rideshare company Lyft over its alleged lack of wheelchair-accessible vehicles, or WAVs. Lyft officials cited limited supply of wheelchair-accessible vehicles and driver availability as reasons why WAVs are only available to Lyft riders in nine cities across the entire U.S. To provide more insight on the issue, we turn to the latest edition of an interview with Attorney Jeremiah Fry Pearson of the disability rights group Westchester Disabled on Move Incorporated.
1: I know that there's also been a number of of conflicts between uh, the New York City TLC And Lyft specifically, I know there was the uh, 25% mandate in particular. I wanted to ask you about that. I know that uh, this court case was filed because Lyft said uh, that the 25% mandate, you know, that they could not provide 25% of the vehicle, 25% of rides that had to be wheelchair accessible. Can you tell us a little bit about what the result of that lawsuit was and if there was a program? that came out of it?
6: Sure. So what Lyft does in its business model, and this, by the way, is something that we're really hoping changes. We would like Lyft to settle this lawsuit and do the right thing. But as we talked about, Lyft's business model is just a fight serving people with disabilities. So Lyft's like, hey, we want to come in New York City, um, which is the most accessible taxi system in the world. We want to knock out all the taxi cabs, but we don't have to serve people with disabilities at all. And the TLC is like, yes, you do. And Lyft's response to that is, well, we can't. We we would go out of business if we served people with disabilities. And the TLC is like, well, number one, we don't care. Too bad. Don't operate in our city if you're not going to follow the law, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a reasonable perspective. But number two, you're lying. And uh, Lyft was lying. There was a lot of litigation. Lyft has been subject to much more regulation in New York City. Um, just one example, the toggle that we were talking about. Oh yes. toggle is insane, right? Hiding the fact that you have wheelchair-accessible vehicles from wheelchair users, there's no justification for that. Imagine if to find a ramp at McDonald's, you had to hit a secret code on the side of the door before the ramp appeared. That's insane, right? The, the TLC is like, get rid of that. Lyft, oh, we couldn't possibly do that. And the TLC's like, that's fine. Keep the toggle. You can't operate here. Lyft gets rid of the toggle. What happens? The number of wheelchair-accessible vehicle rides they give doubles. So all of this litigation has really shown that Lyft's approach to people with disabilities has been to stand in the side on the side of discrimination, to stand against making change.
1: I understand that in the settlement between the TLC and Lyft, uh, there was the idea of combining a program with TLC with Lyft which had to do with a success metric a certain amount of time that yep. uh, officials or uh, drivers had to get specific wheelchair users can you go a little bit into depth of what that success metric was or what that is and if that is that possible in Westchester
6: It certainly is um so the answer is it's, it's certainly possible and it's possible everywhere with the broad enough timeline Um, But basically, Lyft first said we couldn't possibly serve people with disabilities. And the TLC said, then get out of our city. You got to do it. And then Lyft says, oh, well, you know what? Actually, we can. What did Lyft do when they first launched, quote, accessible service? It was a joke. They did all the things that kind of like the things they did in San Francisco. So they could tell the regulators we have accessible service. But in effect, less than 5% of people who wanted rides would get one. It wasn't a real thing. And the TLC said, unlike San Francisco, and unlike what the judge in San Francisco said was okay, the TLC said, that's BS. You're going to have to do a whole bunch of interim steps, and you're going to have to meet specific metrics. And Lyft, oh my gosh, we couldn't possibly meet metrics about the number of, the percentage of rides that we pick up and how long the wait times make. We couldn't possibly do that. TLC, once again, do that or leave our city. What does Lyft do? Do they leave? Is it true that Lyft couldn't meet these metrics? No, it's a lie. Lyft meets the metrics. And in fact, one of the only remedies we want for people in New York City now is we know that what Lyft does is it makes sure that it will meet the metrics for a quarter, and then it pulls back resources Um, because it doesn't want to exceed the metrics because Lyft's mission, for whatever reason, in the disability community, seems to be provide as little service as possible. So that's the big change we want in New York City is – don't just do the bare minimum to hit the metrics. Pretend that you're a business that cares about people and provide actual service. And the end result, though, of all the changes in the, of the regulation in New York City is that Lyft provides far better service to people in wheelchairs in New York City than anywhere else in the country. The end result of every regulation on Lyft has been good, at least as it relates to people with disabilities, because Lyft refuses to do the right thing unless forced to do so. So, I had some pretty extreme feelings about what San Francisco has done to make with serve people with disabilities. I think with respect, it was sloppy. Right? You shouldn't let a company say, we're providing this service, and then have them pay people to sit in a parking lot and not pick up wheelchair users. Um, in Dallas, it's even more ridiculous. For the entire county of Dallas, they have one or two vans that roam around the entire city. Um, and much like in San Francisco, they use the toggle so people with disabilities don't know they exist. That's not providing service. That's absurd. That's just, it's, it's, it's a joke, right? Um, and so, but as much as I want to criticize people, regulators in San Francisco and Dallas, Lyft actually provides service there. So even though there were minimal regulations, they helped. New York City, the TLC tried to be nice, right? They were like, no, you got to serve people. What does Lyft do? Does Lyft make a good state effort to provide real service? No, Lyft does the worst thing it can possibly do. And so the TLC has had to provide increasingly tough uh, regulations and metrics every time Lyft says it can't do it, every time Lyft does it. And what our lawsuit is doing is we're basically taking the TLC approach and making it go nationwide. And so talking about Westchester County, There are more wheelchair-accessible vehicles in Westchester County on the Lyft platform. And again, we only know this. Lyft doesn't ask its drivers whether or not they have wheelchair-accessible vehicles, except in New York City, where they're ordered to do so. So we know that because those vehicles drive from New York City to Westchester, which is a suburb. There are more wheelchair-accessible vehicles in Westchester County than in every other access region, which is where Lyft provides wheelchair accessible vehicles where they're required to do so, except New York City. In other words, there are more Lyft wheelchair accessible vehicles in Westchester County, which is a not huge county in the state of New York, than there are in all of Los Angeles, all of Chicago. And Lyft blocks those cars from serving people on the grounds that there aren't enough of those cars or that there aren't enough people with disabilities. And those are two contradictory arguments. If Lyft is right, which it's not, well, let's say Lyft's right. There's less than 40 wheelchair users in all of Westchester County. But let's say that's true. Well, then that's great. You've got 500 wheelchair accessible vehicles. Why don't you, why don't you serve the 40 people, right? I mean, Lyft got these arguments that are just not—they—they they work in sound bites, but when you actually look at the evidence, they don't withstand any scrutiny. And that's why if Lyft doesn't want to settle this case, I'm looking forward to going to trial. Um, and we'll take this case as far as we have to do it until we get justice.
1: Absolutely. So. Based on what has happened so far, and also bearing in mind, I understand that Lyft went to court uh, three days ago in White Plains, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, was that uh, the same day that uh, the rally was held?
6: There was a rally on the courthouse steps right beforehand where Lyft bribed legisl- right and right before the rally, Lyft was bribing
1: legislators,
6: huh. I think, to have them not go to the rally. Um, but yeah, was, there was a rally before the court hearing. It was very powerful. Uh, and then we went into court, and I think court was a pretty big victory for plaintiffs. So it was a, it was a good day for the forces of justice.
1: Absolutely. And so there is a trial date set at this time, but is there still an opportunity for there to be a settlement? And considering that the uh, story is still developing, I understand we don't want to say too much. But what uh, what is next for this court case? What can we uh, what can we expect from yeah, what has happened recently?
6: So no games for me, and no games from the people I represent, who again are just people with disabilities who want to be served by Lyft. This case should have settled. If this case, I would have be the world would be a better place if I never had to break this case. The world would be a better place if once Lyft got served for. Refusing to serve people with disabilities, once they got sued, they said, Oh my goodness, let's stop doing this and do the right thing. The world will be a better place if Lyft decides to do the right thing tomorrow. Judge Halpern, at the court hearing, he basically advised Lyft not to make any further motions. Lyft has repeatedly tried to dismiss this case, and um, they want to dismiss this case short of trial. One of the arguments that they wanted to avoid a trial was they wanted to say they're not a transportation company. Another argument that they want to use to avoid a trial is. They wanted to say that when Westchester Disabled on the Move went to public hearings with Lyft representatives present and asked Lyft to serve people with disabilities, that was somehow not a request of Lyft to serve people with disabilities. So they had all these arguments that, you know, really smart lawyers came up with, and they convinced the judge in San Francisco, so they might have worked. And our judge made short shrift of those arguments. Now, in fairness, I had some arguments for why I think there shouldn't even be a trial, because I don't think Lyft has any defense, so I think we should win without a trial. And Judge Halpern basically said there's going to be a trial. But after he said there's going to be a trial, he said this is a case that should settle. And he reiterated something that that I said, which is Lyft, at least in theory, they say they're in business to provide transportation for everyone. Westchester, disabled on the move, and advocates like Harriet Lowell Their ambition is not to have a trial. Their ambition is to open the doors to everyone. So there's room to settle. We've repeatedly asked Lyft to have settlement talks, and it's repeatedly refused. Judge Halpern gave Lyft two weeks to report to the court as to whether or not there would be a mediation. He suggested pretty strongly to Lyft that a mediation made sense. He offered to make Magistrate Judge Krauss, who's another very talented jurist. In the Westchester federal court system, available to help the parties mediate. So we have two weeks, and the ball's in Lyft's court. I will tell you, plaintiffs would be more than happy to settle this case for the biggest reason being once we settle, Lyft can turn off the blocker and people with disabilities can start getting rides. That should happen tomorrow. So as soon as Lyft comes to the settlement table, we'll settle. But if Lyft, and what's in Lyft's interest here is. By increasing the number of riders it has, Lyft will ultimately turn a profit by serving people with disabilities. But we do recognize that some of the things will cost Lyft money at the beginning, just like the TLC's reforms have cost Lyft some money at the beginning. We have told Lyft, if you settle, we're not going to ask you to spend a dime, turn off the blocker, provide service everywhere, turn off the toggle, don't hide wave service. That costs you nothing. Oh, I'm sorry, and ask your drivers whether or not they have wheelchair-accessible vehicles. Lyft asks drivers when they register every possible thing about their car. So, you know, when you click on a car in the Lyft app, it's going to say, so-and-so is in a 2012 Ford Tourist that has – it's red, and, you know, the air conditioning is at this level, and the quiet is at that level. They ask the people everything about their car. So we said, well, why don't you ask them whether or not they have wheelchair-accessible vehicles? And Lyft's answer, because Lyft always has an answer, is we couldn't do that. It'll make the sign-up process too hard. Wait a second. You have people when they sign up to be a Lyft driver, they've got to click through a pretty long application process, and one more box, just do you have a wheelchair accessible vehicle? That's too much. And Lyft's like, yes. Now that's one of Lyft's many lies that you can't believe with a straight face. So. Those are the three things that if Lyft will agree to change them, it will cost Lyft no money, it will result in more service, um, and Lyft can avoid an expensive trial and Lyft can avoid the risk of what I think justice requires, which is Mr. Elligudin's full plan, um, which is basically all those metrics. Well, I won't go into what it is, but it's it would require much more of Lyft. And so the world would in some ways be a better place if Lyft went to trial and lost. It would just take a lot a lot longer. And we're willing to settle for less. We're willing to settle for Lyft spending virtually no money out of pocket. Um, And I'm very, very hopeful that Lyft will do that and that a month from now, instead of um, us having to get all these people ready to testify, people ready to be asked invasive questions about their medical condition, all of that stuff, we're just working with Lyft on a solution. I hope Lyft will do the right thing. I'm not confident that they will. And if they don't, I'm really looking forward to going to trial because it'll be one of the honors of my lifetime to win this case at trial.
1: Up next, a dilly a celebrity on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment here on WFHB. We turn now to host and producer Richard Fish for more.
4: Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket.
5: Came across a dilly the other day, a scam story that would make Bob Ripley sit up and take notice if he was still around drawing believe-it-or-not cartoons. A woman in Japan was swindled out of over 4 million yen. Now, that's only about $30,000, but it's still a lot of money. In a very up-to-date version of the good old romance scam. This one was perpetrated on Instagram, where the con artist had a page with pictures and text that completely fooled his victim. He convinced the woman he was in love with her and needed money because he claimed to be a Russian cosmonaut on board the International Space Station who couldn't afford a ticket back to Earth. I'll give you a moment to stop laughing. It took me a while. But this poor woman actually made four payments before she realized she was being rooked. Maybe somebody told her that cell phones don't work on the International Space Station. Falling in love is risky enough, but falling in love on the internet with someone you've never actually met is the riskiest romance of all. Now, on another subject, there are a number of people named Kardashian who are quite famous these days. I'm just not plugged in enough to know what they're famous for, other than being famous, but they do have a lot of people following what they do, whatever that may be. Kim Kardashian was recently fined $1,260,000 by the Securities and Exchange Commission for advertising a cryptocurrency called Ethereum Max. Now, let's be clear. Ethereum Max has no connection with another cryptocurrency called Ethereum, which is the second most popular digital currency right behind Bitcoin. Anyone can create a cryptocurrency. All you need is a few dollars, a YouTube tutorial, and a catchy name. There are almost 20,000 different kinds now, and it's all about marketing. That's what Ms. Kardashian was slammed for doing, along with boxer Floyd Mayweather Jr. and basketball pro Paul Pierce. She promoted the currency without mentioning she'd been paid a quarter million real U.S. dollars to do so. It's called pump and dump. Get a lot of publicity for your new currency, which leads lots of people to invest in it. The price goes up and up, and at some point, the creators of the currency all sell out, take the money and run, leaving all the other investors holding the bag as the value drops to near nothing. Celebrity endorsements are a big help in these con games, even when the victims aren't sure who the celebrities are. Remember, cryptocurrencies are almost entirely unregulated, although if you make money on them, you will have to pay taxes on the profits. For you and me, these things are a financial trapeze act without a net, except for the net profit the perpetrators scuttle away with.